Tamadia, welcome to First Up. We go all around the world this morning. We're looking at beer snakes. Grant Robertson speaks to us before he goes to the UK. And former Wallaby Peter Fitzsimons weighs in on the Pride Jersey saga engulfing the Manly Sea Eagles. Look, it might be their religion, and we've all got entitled to our beliefs and all the rest of it, but refusing to do that, you're in the realms of homophobia. There's no way around it. Hatamaria, welcome to First Up. I'm Nathan Rarere. We're going to start today in the UK, uh, where very militant unions in italics are being blamed for train strikes, which are expected to cause a decent amount of chaos to commuters over the next 24 hours. When we like to speak to London, we like to speak to Henry Riley. We've got a direct line, and he's with us right now. Morena Henry, how are you? You got me there, Henry? No, I don't think we do. At the moment, I can't, uh, is, no, I don't think uh, Henry can hear us there. So should we, okay, look, what we'll do then is we'll just, uh, we'll get to Henry in a second. We're going to stay in the UK where new White Ferns coach Ben Sawyer is back in Birmingham and getting to see the sights for the first time. Uh, Sawyer coached the Birmingham Phoenix in the 100 cricket competition last season and will bring some inside knowledge about the conditions at Edgebaston when women's T20 debuts at the Games. Sawyer spoke with sports reporter Felicity Reid while they avoided the crowds in Victoria Square in Birmingham. Yeah, spent a little bit of time here last year. Um, very different. It was uh, very much COVID lockdown then, so it's actually the first time I've seen most of these places. So, um, But yeah, really looking forward to get back to Edgebast and the people there are great and um, yeah, place I know a little bit. And you've only had a limited time in charge of the team. Are we going to see much of your influence during the games? Uh, look, I hope bowling was a little bit. Uh, I've really tried to work with the bowlers and we got Sarah McGlashan and Bob Carter who've been out standing with, with the batting and they're going really, really well at the moment. So, um, yeah, look, I hope a little, you'll see a little bit with the bowling there and especially with the quicks and um, just even in terms of the roles that, that each of the girls play. So that's really what we've been focusing on. So um, hopefully you see a little bit of that. The team has had some changes and um, wicketkeeper in particular, Katie Martin, yeah. fixed it behind the stumps for quite a long time. Have you made a decision on who might be the wicketkeeper? Uh, no, I definitely haven't yet. Uh, look, they're, they're both very, very capable players and um, they've pretty much shared the load in terms of all the practice matches so um, yeah we got one more big training session and then you know we'll sit down and select the team then and, and announce it you know before the last session so um, yeah, you'll probably know when I know as well. And the Commonwealth Games is quite different to an ICC event I mean do you treat the off-field stuff the same when you're in like a village environment? You're 100% right it is very different uh, even just today it was amazing even as a sort of an Australian like seeing the harker and the welcome today was, was a really cool thing so um, yeah there's lots of different things around and I think the girls are going to you know we've given them a couple of days now to spend and go see things and see the other athletes village and, and I think really be a part of that um, I wanted to be part of the opening ceremony tomorrow night and soak all that in because it's you know you don't get to do this very often and it, it's you know a bit of a privilege as cricketers so I hope they can really be part of it Sounds like it was bin night and people rolling their wheelie bins out the back there. There was uh, White Ferns coach Ben Sawyer, the New Zealand women, uh, play their first match of the games against South Africa. OK, I think we've got our um, our bat line open to Henry Riley, who's with us in London. Kia ora, Henry. Hello, Nathan. One of the unions striking in the UK is the Communication Workers Union, who operate Wi-Fi 
yes. and mobile signal. So I'm going to blame them for that, if that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll do that, mate. Hey, tell me about this. This, this uh, The government has blamed very militant unions uh, for this uh, train strike. What's going on? Yeah, so the, the issues between the unions and the government are not new. They've been going on for years. They've been going on when there was a Labour government. They've been going on since there's been a Conservative government. But the problem is the Conservative government and certainly the current incarnation under Boris Johnson have been really fueling this fire, fueling this tension. Grant Shapps, the Transport Secretary, was put on the media round today where he was talking to various broadcasters, talking to radio stations, TV stations. And he was making the point that actually every day he's been Transport Secretary and he's been Transport Secretary for around three years now, there's been the threat of strike action from the unions or there's been actual strike action. So he is essentially sick to the back teeth of strike action. And we've spoken before, haven't we, Nathan, in the past few weeks about the current Conservative leadership election going on. And lo and behold, one of the key candidates, indeed the frontrunner, Liz Truss, is talking tough on strike. And it's no surprise that she's very far ahead in the polls of Conservative members. Her position on strikes is very popular, actually, among the general public. And it's just this ongoing row between the government and the unions that, uh, that the public is sort of stuck in the middle of. And today we've seen 4,000 workers go out on strike, thousands of people in the UK affected. It's not just in London, it's across the whole country. Mm. And, uh, and the disruption is going to continue for many more dates in August as well. I've been following this uh, along online and there's someone that keeps popping out who I find fascinating. I really like the cut of his jib. Tell me about Mick Lynch. He's, um, he's I think he's the, the delegate for the unions, is that right? That's right. He's in charge of the RMT union and he has become somewhat of a celebrity here in the UK. So he's pretty no nonsense. He's straight talking. And obviously the British public quite like that. And he's quite combative and quite blunt and direct when he does media interviews. You, the politicians and you know radio hosts sort of asking these long convoluted questions towards him. And they'll often reply with sort of one word answers or very short sentences. And the public seems to like him. He comes across very well. He's done all of the sort of big programs, TV channels, radio stations uh, in the UK. He did a bizarre interview with Piers Morgan, where Piers Morgan was bringing up his Facebook profile picture and the fact that it's a character from the Thunderbirds who looks like him. And Mick Lynch has come across well. It's, there's sort of attacks almost from various sections of the media who are trying to sort of undermine him, trying to get a bit of dirt on him. But he backed it back every time and he's still extremely popular and we're sort of used to him popping up on the TV screens now whenever his uh, members at the RMT are going on strike. Yeah, I think the bit that appeals to me about him is that his words, they're not empty. Like he's not just making impact statements. That's, that's one of the things that I, I've found him very impressive to have a look at. And uh, uh, the, Now, I uh, boy, mm. talk about fun. Uh, I got quite the shock when I Googled the name Kate McCann and I thought she presents TV now, but I believe it's a different <laughs> Kate McCann. Uh, the second televised debate between the two candidates you mentioned before, Liz Truss, uh, Rishi Sunak, was, was halted after the presenter Kate McCann passed out. Is she all right? She's fine. So this was sort of the second big televised debate of the week with the BBC on Monday. This was the Suns one with Talk TV. So it was uh, a slightly different audience than you'd get apps on the BBC. It's actually one where perhaps the Conservative candidates were playing slightly closer to home. were speaking to their to their own members and supporters. It was fine for the first half an hour. It was due to last for, for just over an hour. But the presenter collapsed on stage during the debate. They didn't carry on. They actually pulled the debate in the first place. It's interesting because it was she's a last-minute stand-in. So we had the political editor of The Sun, a man called Harry Cole, who was due to present the debate. He tested positive the morning of. Kate McCann was effectively his deputy. She then collapsed on stage. She is fine, by the way. Talk TV have put out a statement saying that, um, that she, in essence, fainted. But their 
uh, advice from the various medical professionals there was that they couldn't carry on. And so the debate was cut short off just half an hour. Um, but yeah, it was a sort of bizarre segment on TV where you didn't see Kate McCann class, but the camera was sort of zoomed in on Liz Truss, who was giving an answer. And she looked extremely worried. You heard her say, oh, my God, and ends up sort of walking over to help the presenter that fell over. So you have to feel for, you know, someone like Kate McCann. It was her big break on a day like yesterday. And, uh, and sadly, is in the headlines for the wrong reasons. Ah, oh, she is. Hey, Henry, thank you uh, very much for your time. Uh, Henry uh, Riley there joining us out of the UK. Yeah, it was an, an interesting debate. I don't know if you've seen it, because just like Henry said, they zoomed right in on Liz Truss. And, and I've, found, I've, I've found as I've, I've had a look at this, I mean, I'm, obviously I'm not voting in it, I've just, I'm just an interested spectator, but I thought Liz Truss always looks a little bit stilted in how she speaks. Uh, however, that was the most human that I've seen her look. She, she showed a genuine concern, and I thought, you know, she left her pulpit straight away to go and offer some help uh, there with Liz Truss so it is interesting now um, I didn't get to speak to England uh, didn't get to speak sorry to Henry about the England women's team beating Sweden to reach the first Euro final uh, but I can ask our next guest I don't know whether they're in denial about it or in, in Sweden <laughs> or not it's uh, Dr Anita purcell Sherland who's with us Kia ora, how are you? Fine thank you, Kia ora. England scoring with a back heel through the legs of a Swedish player. What's what's going on? They're too busy building furniture. What are you doing up there? <laughs> yeah, that was a pretty amazing. Uh, that was a pretty amazing goal. I have to say, I watched a watched a part of it, and uh, it just kind of like in this in the second half or, or towards you know as the game went on, Sweden kind of lost its its oomph, its fire, you know. But yeah. it, you know, England was the better team at the end of the day. Um, they were more more technical than Sweden, and Sweden is usually seen as being the more technically cold players. No, it's it's but, been a great yeah. great tournament. It's absolutely gripped uh, gripped Europe. It's done well on the telly here too. But look, let's jump to uh, other things. Unfortunately, unfortunately, the happiness of football. Let's go to other things there. The, how safe are these uh, the shipments of the Ukrainian grain uh, after the missile strikes there at the Black Sea port at Odessa? Well, Turkey's in control of all of this, and Turkey's formally opened a joint coordination centre to oversee the Ukrainian grain exports under a UN-backed deal aimed at resuming shipments from Ukraine's Black Sea ports. Now, the facility will ensure the safe shipment of grains from three Ukrainian ports, which is over 25 million tonnes of grain waiting there. And Ukraine's Navy says work has resumed at the three Black Sea ports designated as export hubs under Friday's brokered a grain deal with Turkey, UN and Ukraine and Russia. Mm. Uh, and speaking of Russia, I see the gas prices soaring after Russia cut their gas supplies to the EU. What, what is the latest with this? Well, European gas prices rose more than 9%, and as the winter comes um, closer, probably even more, uh, Russia cut flows through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline to Central European countries and to Germany, which imports 55% of Russian gas. Now, the pipeline is operating at 20% of its normal capacity. Nord Stream's network data and head of Germany's network regulator Klaus Müller told Deutschland Funk Radio that gas is now a part of Russian foreign policy and possibly Russian war strategy. Meanwhile, European Union members have agreed to cut gas by 15% between August and March, but some countries will have exemptions to avoid rationing. Let's go to Hungary now. An advisor there to the Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, has resigned. He says he called out the PM over a speech that he gave. What, what did Mr Orban say? 
Well, Mr. Orban is accused of Nazi rhetoric. On Tuesday, one of his advisers, Zhuzha Hegedu, handed in a resignation letter in which she described Orban's words as worthy of Joseph Goebbels. Orban, in a speech on Saturday in Romania, said, among other things, that European peoples should be free to mix with one another, but that mixing with non-Europeans created a mixed-race world. Oh. It was one of the more... Um, <laughs> more the, the lesser of all the evils of what he said during oh my this goodness speech. all right well well done to that aide there for jumping out there too and just finally uh this uh, i saw a video of this it's amazing the melting glacier uh has shifted the swiss italian border this is amazing tell me about this well um basically it is it is a, a lodge for visitors that's in dispute the refugio guide del Juvino lodge and it was built when it was built in 1984 it was on the italian side of the alps however the italian claim is under dispute as the theodol glacier which is located in southern switzerland is slowly shifting the italian swiss border now basically water melting from the glacier flows from a drainage divide down either side of a mountain towards one country or another however the movement of the theodol glacier means the watershed has shifted underneath the lodge. Therefore, two-thirds of the lodge is technically now in southern Switzerland. <laughs> there we go. Thank you very much, Dr. Anita Purcell-Sherland out of Sweden. Yes, the wise man built his house upon a rock, not a glacier. Gee, well, you're not listening in Sunday school. It's 18 and a half past five. I'm Nathan Raddaday. You're listening to First Up here in RNZ National. Before we get to six, we're going to talk about uh, this saga of the Manly Sea Eagles jersey, the players refusing to wear it, and also a celebration of the greatest British song of all time. Papakainga is the term in Tereo which describes communal housing on ancestral land or whenua. Aidan Miles Morunga of the Local Democracy Reporting Programme has been covering the process, uh, the progress of Papakainga in the Waikato region. I asked him what the developments have been with Papakainga on ancestral land there. So the issue of Manafrenua building on ancestral whenua, it's not new, we know this. Uh, it's a lengthy process with many barriers in, in the process for Manafrenua, but we know all of this. And it's been covered by media quite in depth, but what I wanted to do was localise the issue and explore it from a Waikato lens. So the story for me began two months ago. And what started as one story eventually became a few stories in, in what became a series, which opened more conversations around the process and, and ideas on how to make it fairer. So what sort of barriers are experienced there by Mana Whenua around where you are? So I spoke with uh, Tainui Ki Whangaroa, which is a extended whanau of the Tainui Iwi around the Raken area. Mm-hmm. So it's a beautiful coastal town uh, in the Waikato. And they're in the process at the moment of building their papakainga, which is going to take about seven years. And so Earthworks was granted last year to transform a 5.6 hectare piece of land into a communal space, so essentially the papakainga. But what they found in the process before all of that happened was uh, there was a lack of additional funding streams, there was misinformation about processes and a lack of administration to be guardians of the block of land, uh, and um, like I said, a, a lack of accessible funding, which is which is huge for for people who are wanting to build on their on their whenua. Yeah, completely. So, are, the, are there calls for uh, council Māori units to assist with this process to help all the paperwork? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the suggestions that came out of having talks with Iwi and Hapu was what would assist them better is if there was a Māori unit within council. So in the Waikato, I cover about 11 councils. And so I approached all of them um, with a simple question of, is this possible as uh, the need and capacity from council's perspective to do this? They eventually said uh, no. It isn't in their, in their scope at the moment, but they reaffirmed that they are committed to working with Māori and um, strengthening the existing relationship. So, so not entirely, it's a great suggestion, but I mean, this issue is very contextual and it's layered. So, yeah. so what, what about, um, I get, you know, money is a thing there. What, what about uh, what's happening with the Kainga Whenua loan scheme? Mm. So this loan scheme has come up a number of times uh, in the conversations I've had. Um, so with the example that I gave earlier about the public Kainga, so that came about not through Kainga Whenua loan scheme, but through a public Kainga forum agency, which was established with Waikato District Council, uh, Waikato Regional Council, Māori Land Court and Te Kōkiri, where they were the primary funders, So, which is quite similar to the Kāinga Funeral Loan Scheme. It was, the loan initially was capped at 200 k but the recent budget increased that to uh, about $500,000, I believe. Mm. What I found out was that since the scheme's inception, 71 Kainga Whenua loan schemes have been approved to date, and four of those have been settled in the Waikato region. So that's a total of about $15.5 million. And the average of the Waikato loans were about 205000 So very interesting. I've got a story coming out about it this week, but um, that's a pretty good insight of of how additional funding is so crucial for even Hapu around Aotearoa. That's Aidan Miles Morunga. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Running out of July very quickly. It's the 28th. Already, it's the day that's what we call it. And on this day, we say happy birthday to the greatest British song ever made. Yeah! 35 years ago today, this one was rolled out. He was making coffee for Stock Aikman Waterman, and they knew he could sing... Uh, and they went, oh, give him this one. He went, okay, and off he sang. Rick Astley, never going to give you up. It was number one in 23 countries, and it made a huge comeback. Uh, it's huge with the Gen Z right now, and everybody actually, uh, with the, the Rick Roll meme, which popped up in May 2007. In July 2021, this song had been viewed one billion times on YouTube, so he's made about 12 bucks out of that. Well done. Uh, 29 years ago today, Dream Lover was released uh, by Mariah Carey on Music Box, if that's more your taste. Here we go. And on this day in 1866, while we're on the arts and culture desk, Beatrix Potter was born. Yeah. Uh, let's have a look at some important happenings. On this day in 1540, King Henry VIII of England privately married his fifth wife, Catherine Howard. Later on, he very publicly had her beheaded. Uh, important birthdays that happened. Born on this day in 1907, Earl Silas Tupper the American businessman who invented Tupperware. Um, he used the neighbourhood party method to sell it. I once hid inside my flat for about three hours while the Tupperware, Tupperware lady sat outside in the car. Uh, he died in 1940, uh, no, 1983, and of course, funeral took three hours. They just couldn't find a lid that would 
get on the top. Old joke, but you know. Uh, happy 45th birthday to you, Manu Ginobili. Picked in the second round in the NBA, won four titles, an Olympic gold medal, and also is in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Katrina, our producer, her friend Kelly, is 52 years old today. And our very own Vicky Mackay. Vicky Cricket Mackay turns 42 today. Happy birthday to you, Vicky. The best things in life are free. And give them to the birds and bees. I want money. Joining us now from the business team, he's just been bopping away to Rick. Yeah, Rick Astley. How good? Nicholas Poynton. You know, they set me up. They said, we're going to hear the greatest British pop song of all time. Yeah. I had no idea, what but then when I heard it, I wasn't surprised at all. Yeah, no, exactly. It is. Uh, you're like, no, that's. Oh, yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, you can't disagree with that. No, everyone thinks so. Right. <laughs> what do you What do you have a look at today? Well, I wanted to talk about fast food in the age of inflation because yesterday we got an update, a market update from a company called Restaurant Brands, and now they they are the owner operators for a number of international yes. brands here: KFC, Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, Carl's Jr. And they say that they've actually had to raise prices across their menu because of global inflation pressures. Because they don't just operate in New Zealand. Mm. They also have stores in California and Hawaii, as well as Australia. And what they were saying was that um, throughout their supply chain, things like high commodity prices, things like wheat, it could be cooking oil, it could be fuel, all of that is contributing to higher prices. And then also recently, COVID absenteeism, that's put real pressure pressure on their network of franchises. So they say, look, we've had to raise our prices. I asked him yesterday, look, uh, what's the outlook on this? Do you think you're going to have to raise prices further across the menu? And they said, well, they said, we don't want to. We want to keep up sales momentum. You know, if we go too hard on prices, we're scared we're going to lose people. But then that sort of throws up another question. We're hearing about the rising cost of living. Are people buying takeaways at the same rate they usually are? And they sort of said, well, end of the day, takeaways, they're sort of inflation proof. No matter how hard people are finding it, in terms mm. of their spending, they're still going to buy a three-piece quarter pack or they're going to buy a five-dollar pizza. Yeah. It's just one of those things. People love takeaways in this country. And and people can still buy a lunch for under 20 bucks from it. Unfortunately, it's gone from being there, <laughs> hey, it's 11.50 to hunt, now it's 14 bucks. It's the hey, still into 20. You know what I mean? Oh, and definitely. We, we actually, as a family, we did the whole, oh, we get pizza the other night. We thought, yeah, the five-buck pizzas. And in the end, we went, cool, we're not getting pizza for a little while because it ain't that anymore. Yeah, well, then the thing is, you get your five dollar pizza and you eat it, yeah. and you could eat another five dollar pizza. Yeah, you could. So <laughs> like, the whole, then, uh, you know, while the prices haven't raised on a five dollar yeah. pizza, they've suffered from shrinkflation, which is the pieces got slightly smaller, yeah. but uh, the prices stayed the same. Yeah, no, they try and tell you nuts because your hands have got bigger. So don't yeah. tell me. So that. W- keep an eye on your takeaways, yeah. and keep watch, keep an eye on those prices because do not be surprised if they continue to increase. Oh, no, that's my advice, but um, it's sort of bad. News to start the morning, I'm afraid. But yeah. Oh, just very quickly, tell me about the uh, what's the the FMA coming after the greenwashers? Yeah, greenwashing is when people make misleading claims about the efficacy or the, you know how how green their investment fund is because it's a really popular idea, right? You know, mm. you're not just investing in something, but you're investing in a company or in a fund that's focused on having good aspects for the world. Well, it's been an incredibly profitable business, but what we've seen overseas is the SEC or banks or regulators throughout Europe have actually been clamping down on many of the banks because they found
found that what what it says on the tin doesn't match up with what they're actually doing. Mm. This has been an area where the FMA has re- released some guidance, but there has been some pressure. There was a lot of talk recently about, well, it is getting quite big. New Zealanders have shown that they want their money to invest it ethically, but they've come out and criticised 14 KiwiSaver providers and other managed funds for blurring the lines on ethical investments. They've essentially put them on notice, but say that if people don't get in line here, they've got a range of regulatory tools at their disposal to stop them, or they can even threaten some legal action. So if you're going to be selling uh, some slick green energy fund, well, there better not be any coal in it. Yeah, just actually make sure it is green. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Point. Uh, Nicholas, and you can hear more from the, on the business team this morning at uh, 10 to 7 on Morning Report. If you're going shopping with a New Zealand dollar, you can buy the following 62.08 US cents, 89.57 Australian cents, 61.25 Euro cents, 51.51 British pence, 4.19 yuan, 85.12 Japanese yen, 36.94 Russian rubles and 1,961.29 Mongolian uh, Tugriks uh, if you want to get up there and uh, buy some things. Uh, let's go to Australia now. We're drinking a can of beer at a sports game. has long been a thing of the past because most of the country's major sports grounds have uh, tipped beer cans into plastic cups for years, primarily so that bogans don't use them as missiles and throw them onto the field. But single-use plastic being phased out uh, for environmental reasons means that some stadiums are returning to cans and our police fear that can mean a return to the bad old days where officers and players were belted with full stubbies. The ABC's Angus Randall reports Tony McGuinness and brings it back. Motor at the back. Oh! Tony Motorist taking a screamer. The last time you could drink a can of beer at a game of Aussie Rules football, you were likely cheering on a Dunstall, Lockett or Modra. It's been a while between drinks, but the MCG has been trialling cans in some sections of the ground. Adelaide Oval wants to hold its own trial, but South Australia's police union is against the move. Mark Carroll is the Police Association president. Well, we just have to look into the, to the history of um, why cans were banned in the first place from um a sporting stadium right around Australia. They can be used as dangerous projectiles, often that uh, police have to deal with drunken and unruly behaviour. And as they might be removing somebody from from the oval because of that behaviour, there's always a coward that wants to throw um, something at police and and having cans back at the oval um, provides um, that kind of coward with with a projectile that's quite dangerous. And, And we just don't think any good can come from this and we think people should learn from and remember the history of these issues. Adelaide Oval's Stadium Management Authority says it won't comment on the application. In its request to the Liquor and Gaming Commission, the Oval says the move would be environmentally responsible. But Mark Carroll says cans are not the only option for going green. That's what um, they're arguing, but of course you can buy uncompostable plastic cups and other environmentally friendly vessels that are far safer than an aluminium can. And I just say that I'm in the biggest belief that someone from the um, from the Adelaide Oval Stadium Management Authority would say that it's... Um, it's not as dangerous or it's just as, as safe as uh, some other kind of vessel that could be thrown at police or, or, or spectators. I mean, they've obviously never had an ammunition can full of beer in the back of their head. Mark Carroll says he's disappointed with SA Police for changing its stance on cans at the football. State Police originally opposed the return of cans, but now says a compromise has been reached. SA Best MP Frank Pangello is calling on Adelaide Oval to take it to the fans before the first can is sold. It's uh, disingenuous of them not to uh, 
even comment uh, about it when you actually should go out into the community and ask the community what they think and engage with them if they want to see cans sold and also consumed on the terraces or on the boundary. I mean, I, I don't certainly want to go to the football and uh, face the prospect uh, uh, of uh, cans flying, hitting players, spectators, even little kids that are there. Ron Isco is from the AFL Fans Association. He says supporters are ready to farewell plastic cups. Fans tell us that when you buy the beer in the plastic cups, and then you might by buying one for yourself and one for your mate, and then you take it on one of those trays and you move your way through the seats to your seat, they spill. They they, they topple over sometimes. So uh, the fans are saying, yeah, cans, bring back the cans. So when it was talked about, fans have loved it. Of course, that's not to say we encourage more drinking. Stadiums bringing back cans will hope to avoid a repeat of the 1988 Rugby League State of Origin. The game was briefly called off after the parochial Queensland crowd pelted the ground with tins. Here come the cans onto the ground. This is not good. The media are getting barraged. I don't think Mick Stone can let this game go on. There's cans on the ground. He can't let this go on. He stopped the match. Ron Isco believes there are enough protections to keep players, officials and fans safe from cans being used as missiles. I think those days are long gone and if anyone, anyone would ever do that uh, with all the cameras around and the people around, they'd dob that person in and that person would be thrown out straight away. So I think 30 years ago, 50 years ago, maybe that was an issue, but cameras everywhere, security pretty good these days and people tend to dob in troublemakers anyone would do that would get thrown out straight away so i i don't think and i don't think fans think it's an issue uh but if any if any fool out there thinks they can get away with that they'll be kicked out of the ground straight away and probably banned from coming back to the ground Mm. Seven Manly Seagulls uh, rugby league players stood down this week after the club announced players would wear a rainbow strip uh, this week to promote lgbtq inclusion. The players cite religious reasons for refusing to wear the rainbow strip on their jersey and say that they weren't consulted. There's been a heat of backlash both from within and outside the NRL with coach Des Hasler apologising for what's happened. Uh, I discussed this with former Wallaby, author and expert on pretty much everything, Peter Fitzsimons. It's been an extraordinary episode and uh, I mean the best words of it come from Ian Roberts and I'm sure mm. your older your older listeners will know Ian Roberts, at least those that follow rugby league. I mean he's two things, Ian Roberts. He's the toughest bastard that's ever lived. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> as a footballer, he was Buck Shelford plus two. You know, like he was I mean Buck Shelford was one of the toughest I've ever seen, but I'd put Ian Roberts right up there with him. Yeah. But Ian Roberts is also by his own what he says to me, he's also the gayest man that ever lived. <laughs> he, he once said to me, you know, like if you could put gayness from zero to 100, he said, I'm 100, you know. <laughs> and when he came out in 1995, it was it was just extraordinary because it changed the national conversation because you had all the stereotypes of gays. Yeah. Uh, you know, the limp-wristed, we've all seen that, you know, that horrible stereotype. Well, you went, hang on. There's Ian Roberts. He's not like that, you know, and it changed the conversation. And, and in response to what's happened at Manly, Ian Roberts was, you know, across the whole thing four weeks ago. Um, he wanted it to happen, but he said what's happened this last few days, it's a conversation we need, we, we need to have. And the conversation is a really difficult one because, 
you know, there's so many viewpoints. One viewpoint, my, my first viewpoint is, hang on, guys, bring it in tight. What, there's seven of you, seven of you who will trash the entire manly season mm. rather than wear a jersey which shows simple solidarity with gay people? For Christ's sake, what are you thinking? And then other people say, well, hang on, it's their religion. To which I say, look, it might be their religion, and we've all got entitled to our beliefs and all the rest of it, but it's straight out, you know, refusing to do that. You're in the realms of homophobia. There's no way around it. Oh, absolutely, and and it's a sport too, Peter, that markets itself on machismo. You know, I mean that you know the the lead up to every state of origin is blokes fighting from twenty two years ago or something like that. You know, and they do mm. that. So, with this as well, are you buying the whole that it's it's a religious reason that they're not that they're not wanting to wear this? Well, religious or cultural or whatever, but it's it's a thing of if you guys have got a real problem with this you do have a real problem with this because the nrl their you know their value system the code to which they sign up to is we are inclusive we believe in diversity we want everybody to follow our game and and believe in our game and play our game and there was an extraordinary moment in 2017 you may recall where at the nrl grand final they had that, I think it's the American singer, is it Macklemore? Yeah, Macklemore, yes. yes. Macklemore, and I'm showing my age, but I'm not knowing how to pronounce his name. <laughs> but he sang at the NRL Grand Final, he sang the gay anthem or the single same-sex marriage anthem, One Love. I was sitting next to Ian Roberts and his boyfriend with my wife in the NRL box, and they're holding hands, and this, you know, I mean, right there was an extraordinary moment. There is this league superstar, but it is unimaginable 30 years ago that a league superstar would sit in a box in the NRL box holding hands with his boyfriend. So there's a great breakthrough moment. Yeah. Then Macklemore comes on and sings this song, and Ian was nervous, as in, how is the league community going to react to this? Anyway, they did themselves proud. They all stand up. Those who knew the words sang the words. The others did that thing where you turn the flash on on your on your your iPhone and you sort of wave it around, yeah, yeah. and there was just these glittering lights like this, like Christmas, and they all sang. Everybody was into it. It was fantastic, and so here was this seminal moment in rugby league history, which has had a background. Let's face it, of toxic masculinity. God knows how many atrocities over the years in terms of behaviour. And there they were. There was this bright, shining moment where the rugby league community said, I'll tell you what we stand for. We stand for we're all equal beneath the Southern Cross. We're gays, we're straight, we're, we're black, we're white, we're this, we're that. We're all over the shop. But, you know, all over the shop, that's a majority. We're, we're, we're across the spectrum, but we believe that gays are like the rest of us. And Ian Robert, tears in his eyes, goes up to Todd Greenberg, the then CEO. He embraces him and he says, Todd, this will save lives. And this was the driving force of Ian Roberts, and it is now. And for what it's worth, it's been my driving force in commentary on it from Israel for our woman. The driving force is this. In Australia, and I don't know about New Zealand, but I suspect it might be the same. You're more progressive than us. I'll just say for Australia... In terms of teen suicides, six times the number of gay teens take their lives as straight teens. Okay, so when you know that, mm-hmm. from from that point on, and you work your way back, you say, 
this is a fantastic thing to have initiatives like this. My my reckoning with Israel for our, on the Israel for our issue was back in the dark ages we sort of you know we were vaguely aware that gays were bullied, but you know we didn't know the stats, we didn't know how bad it was, we didn't know how isolating it was. Now we do know. So now we know that fact. What it behoves all of us in the public square is when people get on their soapbox and they say there's something wrong with gays, you know, the devil's work or whatever, it behoves the rest of us to say, shut the ruck up. Seriously, shut the ruck up. Peter Fitzsimons. quote for the promo. Uh, we are heading towards uh, 6 o'clock. I'm Nathan Rarity with First Up here on RNZ National. Still to come, we're going to speak with the Deputy Prime Minister just before he uh, jets off to the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham. The professionals of RNZ are the Morning Report crew. They're up after 6. Uh, Corin Dan is with me right now. Kia ora, Corin. Kia ora, good morning. Remember that, remember that you go out for people's birthday lunches and they go, oh, we're paying as a group. Yep, okay. Dirts! I'll have dirts! You'd be like, oh, no! I used to get sucked into that every time. I was an idiot. Well. Because I don't be- drink it, you see. Well, there you go. Right. Yeah. Um, no, I haven't had a birthday lunch out for a while. Yeah, for, true. For many, many years. It seems like a strange thing to do, actually. They now, were in the before time, weren't they? They were in the yeah. before time. Yeah. Sounds quite nice, doesn't it? it does. uh, this, the, the Commonwealth Games, that's nice news, isn't it? As you were saying in the headlines there, Tom Walsh and Joel King uh, mm. carrying the flag. Uh, so we will hopefully speak to, I think, Joel with a bit of luck. After oh, yeah. after six thirty, because that uh, it's going to be a nice little break, isn't it? From all the doom and gloom in the it world is. to see some Commonwealth Games. Remember how sports. remember how nice it was just when the Winter Games was on. Like we all got really excited about sports we knew nothing about because it was exactly, just nice. Exactly. I mean, it you know, you nice. can get into a into a gripping game of lawn bowls. You yeah. Know, at the com- then there's w- the women's cricket. Yeah. Sevens. It's yeah. a cool sport. It's all there. I know. It's it. great. Uh, very quickly, we will also talk rugby and Scott Robertson and his uh, his musings on a podcast about wanting to be an international coach, which has got some people worried and excited yeah. at the same time. Um, we're looking at the health system, more pressure on surgeries, in particular now some heart surgeries, people being forced to stay in hospital a lot longer than they need to, unfortunately. Uh, TVNZ, the, the resignation of their boss. Uh, also, the ongoing uh, criticism of the reserve. Bank. We're hearing from Arthur Grimes, former chair of the Reserve Bank board uh, and professor. He is also uh, joining in on that criticism of the performance of our Reserve Bank uh, and the emissions trading scheme as well. So we've got the light wow. and shade today. You have, have to you've got 20 pounds of stuff in a 10 pound bag. That's yep. awesome. Thank you very much, Corinne Dan, uh, who's here after six. Yeah, the, uh, revir- uh, the review into the hiring of um, TVNZ presenter Kamal Santamaria has found a number of flaws in the recruitment process. So the former Al Jazeera presenter lasted just 32 days in the job and left under a cloud of accusations of inappropriate behaviour towards colleagues. TVNZ's head of news and current affairs, Paul Urisic, resigned after the review into the hiring of Mr Santamaria was released yesterday. So I discussed that report with the Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson and started by asking if he was confident that Mr Santamaria Santamaria was the only questionable appointment. Obviously it's the one that you know, precipitated the review and no doubt Television New Zealand will be looking at, at previous appointments but uh, I think 
as they're noting here, the really important thing is that these rules are there for a reason. Um, they probably do need to be enhanced and they obviously do need to be used. So I'm not aware of any other situations that have come to the fore. And obviously from the perspective of, of the government, you know, we don't get involved in the day-to-day -day appointment decisions. But what we did seek assurance about was that good process had been followed. As you say, one or two gaps in that process here. We're looking forward to seeing them rectified in any future appointments. Yeah, I see that the head of news and current affairs, he's also resigned, who was, you know, the head when he was um, employed there. Do you know, will TVNZ hire his replacement or will they wait until the transition into the new RNZ TVNZ entity? I don't have any information about that, but I would strongly suspect they will hire a replacement. That will be a, a process over several years of, of bringing the two organisations together, and so there will certainly be a need for a head of news and current affairs for TVNZ in the interim. You know, your coalition partners there, the Greens, have they shot themselves in the foot by ousting James Shaw but not having anyone to take over? It's a funny part of a process, but I always feel a bit strange commenting on another political party's internal machinations. Each of us in our political parties have got all sorts of rules and, and they're understandable to the people in the party, but possibly not always to people outside. Yeah. But, you know, from my perspective, I've worked really closely with James over a long period of time going back into opposition. And, you know, I've got the hugest regard for him. And I think the work that he has done as climate change minister is, is really leading a transformation transformation in our economy and our society. So from that's the perspective I've got on this. Green Party members will obviously have their own perspectives and, as I say, have their own processes, but he's definitely a valued colleague from my perspective. Right. Uh, let's move to uh, down south there, Dunedin Hospital, New Zealand Nurses Organisation, saying that because of the nursing shortage being so dire, they, they've had to call on nursing students to do tasks that are normally done by qualified nurses. Do you agree that this places the students at, at an unacceptable risk? Well, I think, you know, it's really important to remember that for many years, part of your, your training as a nurse was undertaken on the ward. And, you know, it's an important part, actually, of learning um, your craft and your profession as a nurse. My understanding from what I've been advised and what I've read is that mostly the nurses were performing effectively the healthcare assistant role that you see in a lot of hospitals. That's just really looking after patients, you know, working with them so they're ready when a, when a nurse or a doctor is, is with them. So, I think, by and large, I'm sure the nurses, the charge nurses on duty would have made sure that the student nurses were acting only, you know, to the extent of their capability and in that healthcare assistant type role. We do have to recognise we've got a very particular set of circumstances at the moment when it comes to our hospitals. You know, we're seeing a level of seasonal illness we haven't seen in New Zealand for many years and COVID on top of that. And yes, we have, you know, obviously had the borders closed and only a certain amount of people able to come in to fill roles. We're working on that right now. This kind of action is obviously an exceptional one nowadays but as I say in the past training nurses have played these sorts of roles. Yeah so I guess it's good to get some hands-on experience. I mean I know you mentioned they're working on it. How's it going getting more health workers in from overseas? <laughs> Yeah, look, I, I, I heard some numbers from um, Michael Wood, the, the Immigration Minister in the House yesterday, and, and we're making really good progress. I, I think I believe I heard a number of applications of up over a 1,000 and, you know, 100 and more of them having already been processed just in the last week or two. So we are seeing a level of interest here in people coming to New Zealand. There's no doubt that in many occupations, you know, there are skill gaps that previously we would have filled with people um, migrating into New Zealand. COVID just hasn't allowed 
allowed for that at the scale we we would have wanted. And in all frankness, that's because we did close the borders to protect New Zealanders, and it was one of the trade-offs. Uh, I stand by that decision. Now we've got a new immigration rebalance that attempts to make it easier for accredited employers, makes it more efficient and effective, and, and immigration are processing those applications as fast as they can. Okay. Uh, let's keep it COVID. So National, the Greens and Act, they're all calling for an inquiry into the COVID spend. W- would you agree to that? Well, as, as I think the Prime Minister said on in the House and on, on Tuesday, you know, there will come a time for a comprehensive review of the COVID response. We're just in the middle at the moment of this winter wave and we want to make sure we get ourselves through that and it's all hands to the pump to do that. But equally, throughout COVID, there have been numerous opportunities for all of the opposition parties you mentioned to quiz the government about every aspect of its response. And, you know, from the Reserve Bank Governor to myself, to Minister Hipkins, Dr Bloomfield, the Treasury, we've all been in front of parliamentary select committees on numerous occasions. The Auditor-General's had a look at some of the spending that we've been doing and made recommendations there. So it's not that there's nothing happening. Actually, we've been looking at it piece by piece. I accept that at some time in the future we should have an overall look at it. Let's find the right time and the right place for that. Uh, but let's also get through this winter peak as well. The the finance reporter Bernard Hickey wrote on his substack. I'll, I'll read this to you because I want to get his words right. In my view, the Prime Minister and Finance Minister should call on boards and owners of companies to return to taxpayers as much of the $20 billion in COVID cash handouts that they can and no longer need. Businesses have 96 billion dollars in cash in their bank accounts up 23 billion from December 19. So will you be able to call on those back? Look, we've obviously seen a number of businesses return COVID money that they they believe they no longer needed. I believe it's up around the 800 million mark. But we also have to bear in mind that when we set this scheme up, we did not put that requirement in place. And obviously we set the scheme up very quickly because we had a major crisis in front of us. We did consider this sort of proposal of whether or not there'd be within the rules that you had to return it on on the basis of certain certain criteria. We were very concerned at the time that if we put too many hoops and employers wouldn't take it up, they'd lay their staff off and we would have much higher levels of unemployment than we ended up having. So the scheme wasn't set up with that requirement in place. Obviously, you know, businesses can take a look and make the decision and we welcome it when they do make the decision to pay that money back. But I can't go back in time and rewrite history to make it a requirement that wasn't there when when people um, took the money. So some of them just got taxpayers' cash for nothing, really? Well, I wouldn't say for nothing. I mean, what happened was that they had to commit to maintaining their staff, and that was the major thing we wanted. So you only got the wage subsidy money if you committed to keeping your staff on board. That was critical. We wanted people to stay attached to their jobs. We've ended up with unemployment at 3.2%. We should be really proud of that. And so you know, those were the rules people, as long as they abide by those rules, you know, it can obviously make their own decisions about the money, but we don't think we're in a position legally to be able to ask for it back unless they have breached the rules. Okay. You, I'm speaking to you at the airport, is it, where are you going to? We are heading off to uh, the UK and to France for some meetings in my... Are you really? (laughs) I know. Um, For some meetings in my finance portfolio initially um, with the French and and, and UK governments and then up to Birmingham for the Commonwealth Games wearing my sport and recreation. 
minister hat. So, yeah, should be a really good trip. The, the UK financial leaders, that's a bit of a weird time, though, right? Because I see they're having all sorts of, you know, they're trying to elect <laughs> their leader. And they, it might be quite hard. Are you sure the people that you're meeting with will still be still be in jobs in a few weeks? Put it this way. We, we're being very flexible about the agenda for, that, for the reasons that everyone will understand, I'm sure. But also, in, when I'm in the UK, I'm going to be seeing the, the governor of the Reserve Bank of England, the, the, the equivalent of Adriana Orr, um, meeting with some people who invest in New Zealand, meeting with some tech companies, including one of our own companies, Zero. So, you know, there's plenty of other people to meet as well as the government uh, side of things. That's Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson. Uh, finally, this morning, feedback has come in. I'll just quickly go through. Angry about gay people, angry about gay people. Except the fact that I don't like gay people. Here's one here. Pretty amazing that Rugby League is leading the way on that one. Uh, this one's coming. Plenty of these ones, though. Happy birthday, Vicky. Happy birthday, Vicky. Happy birthday, Vicky. Enjoy the dirts. There we go. Lots of uh, feedback that's coming today. Thank you very much for your time running out of show. Just enough time to tell you. Morning Report is next. Download our podcast. We'll be back in your ears up all the time.